Well, here we are. We are in, uh, right in the throes of um, the next presidential election cycle. And so give you a little fun fact. Uh, of the 31 presidents that have been elected since 1900, only nine were elected who were shorter than the ones that they were uh, competing against. In other words, if you make it that far, you got a little bit over a 70% chance of being the president of the United States by just being taller than other people. Now, science has shown and, uh, that we as people, we tend to make decisions about how we perceive things, how we see things. We tend to give people more credence when they're taller, um, when they're better looking, and we tend to think, oh, well, they look tall, they look like they're, they're strong, they look like they have it put together, they must know what they're, what they're doing. In fact, this isn't just some kind of new phenomenon. It's something that's been going on since the beginning of man, basically. You go back 3,000 years ago when Israel had their very first king, his name was Saul, that the whole people of Israel, they wanted a king like everybody else, and they saw this guy and they thought, this guy looks like a king. He was tall and he was handsome. And they said, that's it. He must be the guy who's going to bring us into the next level of being, you know, a, a, a regional national power. Well, it didn't turn out so great. So God then sent another, you know, sent a prophet, this guy named Samuel. He said, okay, you're going to anoint the next king after Saul. All right. And so you're going to go down to this town of Bethlehem. Yeah, the same Bethlehem that Jesus was born, but about a thousand years before that. And he told him, you're going to go to this house of this guy named Jesse, and you're going to anoint one of his kids as the next king. So Samuel does exactly what God tells him to do. So he goes down there and, and he meets Jesse and one of his sons comes out. His name is Eliab. And Samuel looks at the guy and goes, oh, okay. He must be the one that, that God wants because he looks like a king. I mean, look at him. By which God just kind of chastises Samuel there. and said, He says, nope, I didn't choose him. And Samuel, God does not look at things the way that man does. Man looks at the outward appearance, but God looks at the, the heart. But there's a problem with us. We tend to not look at the heart. You know why we don't look at the heart? It's because it takes a lot of work to look at the heart. You actually have to listen to somebody. You have to, actually have to understand what they're saying and what they mean by that, what their intentions are. We don't do that. We're kind of lazy. And so instead, we just kind of look at people and we make assumptions, snapshot judgments. You know, it's, studies have shown that we do the same thing. If somebody acts really confident, then, oh, they seem so confident, so they must know what they're doing. Um, and when, we, you know, when we're around other people and other people are making the same choices or thinking about something, we all kind of go, well, since everybody else thinks that way, then it must be right. Not only that, but studies show that we tend to give more credence, more trust to people who look like us, right? And so we kind of look at somebody and go, oh, well, they look like me. So since I'm a trustworthy person, right, with projection, they must be trustworthy as well. Well, we kind of do the flip side of that too, right? Like if people don't look like us, then we tend to, you know, maybe kind of push away or we tend to kind of dismiss or maybe depending on how we feel about a way that certain people look, we may even be hostile to, to them. We don't really think deeply about the heart. We can totally get people wrong and scenarios wrong because oftentimes we won't do the hard work to know what is right and to know the heart of someone. That goes all the way back to Adam and Eve, right? Adam and Eve 
uh, totally you know, bought into whatever the serpent was saying because the serpent was already speaking into what they already wanted or desired, which is true as well. We tend to, when we listen to people who tell us what we want to hear, we automatically kind of click into that. And we also, not only that, but we also think they're very smart. Oh, that guy person is so smart. Why are they so smart? Because they think just like me, right? Just kind of the way that, that we are. But Adam and Eve didn't take the time to sit there and go, okay, wait a minute. Maybe we should talk to God about this. Now they just kind of, you know, hook, line, and sinker. And, and then you see this, this, this creation of estrangement between man and humanity. Now, so we're in this weird place, though. You know, we are in this place where we can't live with God, but we can't live without God, right? There's this estrangement, but we, we need God. There's this, we, you know, we need people, but we also feel this sense of insecurity and disconnect from people at the same time. We need each other. So we kind of go through this weird, you know, uh, relationships and walking through all these relationships with God and with other people in this life. And, you know, and, and the other thing that's kind of weird about it is you, you kind of look through uh, scripture and this whole idea when you think about unity, right? And unity, when um, Paul talks about unity, he said unity is a good thing. But here's the thing. Unity is only as good as the one that we unify around. In fact, what's interesting, when we see at the very beginning, right, after, after Noah, all the people of the world at the time wasn't very much, they all kind of congregated in one place called Shinar, which is modern-day Iraq. So they all get together, and they're unified, right? So they're unified, and so we would think unity is a good thing, but they were unified around the wrong thing. And so what they wanted to do was they wanted together collectively to become like God, to have the power of God, to be bigger than God. And God comes down, you know, as they're building this tower to show their, you know, to exclaim their own greatness and whatever, to be like God, to be greater than God, God comes down and to them. And he looks at them and he goes, their unity is destructive. Can you, can unity cause destruction? We don't have to go to the 20th century. I mean, the Germans were just, you know, their engineering feats and what they did was absolutely mind-boggling. And they were an incredible powerhouse, but they were unified around something really, really decreptive that caused so much destruction. And so humanity was coming together against God, if you will, to be better than God, greater than God. And then we see God scatter them. In fact, it's interesting, tribalism, which we kind of think about in this, you know, our, our culture and things and tribals and tribes and different tribes. And, but tribalism actually came because of a destructive unity, came out of a destructive unity. And so humanity was coming together in a destructive way to be greater than God in a way that would cause even greater destruction. And so God, by his divine power and his grace, scatters the people. It's found in Genesis chapter 11, verse 8 and 9, which says this. In that way, the Lord scattered them all, all the people who were all together all over the world, and they stopped building the city, and that is why the city was called Babel, because that is where the Lord confused the people with different languages. In this way, he scattered them all over the world. So, so now you have all this tribalism around the world, but there was already tribalism even before this, right? There's a, there's a tribe called Humanity, and there was the triune God at odds with one another. 
But God looked at humanity and go, man, they're unifying. They're coming together around their own flesh and carnality that's causing just, will just cause so much havoc. So he scatters them so they would do less damage. Now, tribalism, we've seen it and experienced and seen history about it, about how tribes and different groups can go after each other, which is true. You know, but here we have the collectiveness by which the destruction would be even, even greater. So God was kind of slowing people down, if you will. It's, 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 you know, it's, it's an effective thing, and we've seen it through history. Assyria, which was one of, or if not the first really big global superpower, uh, what they would do is they would conquer a land, and they would take people of that land, and they would take them, and then they would disperse them all throughout their whole empire. And then they would take all these different people from their empire, and then they would put it right into that little pl- space. And in that space, you know, people would have different languages, different cultures, so they wouldn't be unified, so then they wouldn't be destructive against the Assyrians, right? And that's kind of what happened to northern Israel back, you know, 700 BC and all around there. So, but here's the thing. Here's the thing about God, though. <clears throat> This wasn't a permanent plan. This was to slow down, to continue on, to create the plan that would bring people back into unity in a healthy way, centered around something or someone who would unify us instead of that would cause more destruction, that would cause healing and flourishment and growth. So constructive unity then came because of the sacrificial death of Jesus Christ. The unity came around the death of a good man for the forgiveness of our sins. Instead of being unified around our own selfish wants and desires and power, our unity is around a leader who's willing to give up his life for us. That our constructive unity came because of the sacrificial uh, death of Jesus. Paul wrote this in one of his letters to the church in in Ephesus. In in Ephesians here, in chapter 1, it says this, God decided in advance to adopt us into his own family by bringing us to himself through the blood sacrifice of Jesus Christ. That we were dispersed, and now God is bringing the band back together, man, right? He's bringing us back together as a family, around, through the gracious, beautiful, selfless sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And guess what? This is what he wanted to do. Why? Because it gives him and gave him great pleasure. Now, at the beginning of the church, the very beginning of the church, if you go back to Acts chapter 2, you kind of get a vision of what this movement called the church of um, is supposed to be about and, and how it started and, and, and how it should inform us even 2,000 years later of thinking about how we are to be family, how we are to come together. In Acts chapter 2, verses 1 through 12, it, go, it goes and it says this. So on the day of Pentecost, Pentecost was a, a Jewish festival where people from all over the, all Jews all over the Roman Empire and different places would come to, to worship God. This is 50 days after Passover. On this particular uh, Pentecost, it was about 10 days after Jesus rose from the dead. So about 10 days after Jesus rose from the dead, the believers who were there, about 120 of them, were meeting together in one place. And goes on in verse 2. Suddenly, there was a sound from heaven like a roaring of a mighty windstorm, and it filled the house where they were sitting. 
Then what looked like flames of tongues of fire appeared and settled on them. So first of all, this is important because if you go back and you spend some time in your small groups, you're in your car and you're driving around or whatever. And in Genesis chapter 11, as they're trying to ascend to God and to the greatness of God, God comes down and he scatters them. But here after the resurrection of Jesus Christ, God comes down again. But instead of scattering, he's bringing the family back together. And so in verse four, he goes on. Uh, in Acts, it says, and everyone present was filled with the Holy Spirit. They were unified by God the Spirit and dwelling inside of them, okay? That God would be the unifying factor of this new family. And they began speaking in other languages as the Holy Spirit gave them this ability. And verse 5 goes on, and it says, at that time, there were devout Jews from every nation living in Jerusalem. Now, when they heard this loud noise, like something was going on, like, man, people are out in the streets and they hear the noise and they're like, what in the world is that? So everyone came running and they were bewildered to hear their own languages being spoke by the believers. In other words, again, these were people from all over the Roman Empire, all these different tribes, you know, they were Jews, but they grew up in all these different places. They learned their, 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 their languages and their cultures. And so they're all coming together and they're hearing all of these people speaking in their language. It would be like, if you knew me really well, <coughs> and, I, and you've known me all these years, if all of a sudden I just started talking Mandarin, which I, I don't know anything about Mandarin, it would, it would just like blow your mind, okay? And if you were, you know, Chinese and you, 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 Mandarin's your native language, it would blow your mind that I would be able to speak so eloquently in your language. So that's kind of what's going on. So they're all just kind of like mind blown. Wait a minute. You know, these guys, these, these guys are, are Galileans. How in the world do they know all of these different languages? And so in verse seven, it goes on. It says, they were completely amazed. How can this be? They exclaimed. These people are all from Galilee. And yet we hear them speaking in our own native languages. In verse nine, it says, here we are, Parthians, Medes, Elamites, people from Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, the province of Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, and the areas of Libya around Serene, visitors from Rome. All right, moving on. Verse 11, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs. That's a lot. That's a long list. So basically, the, the point was, was that it wasn't just some person who was bilingual. It wasn't just some person who maybe knew three languages. These are a lot of different languages by which this is just a mind-blowing experience that any of them had. And we all hear these people speaking in our own language about the wonderful things God has done. The unifying factor of this is not their languages, not the, the, the fact that they spoke the same language. The unifying effect here is about what God has done in Christ Jesus. The sacrificial of death of Jesus Christ to bring us, bring us estranged people back into a relationship with God and estranged humanity back into relationship with one another. And they stood there amazed and perplexed. What can this mean? They asked each other. And then Peter steps up and goes, well, I'm glad you asked. And then he goes on and he explains all throughout how, you know, the scriptures and the prophets all pointed to the reality of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, to bring humanity back to God and to bring humanity back into a relationship, a family relationship with one another. 
And she's going through this. You know, people are saying, what should we do? What should we do? And, and Peter goes, this is what you should do. You need to turn. He says, repent. And repent literally means to turn directions. Instead of turning the direction of missing the mark of who God is and missing the mark of having that relationship with God, just turn your hearts back to God and come and, and be baptized, which is, which is a, a symbol of basically saying, I am identifying myself with God and belonging into his family. In Acts 2, 41, it says, those who believed what Peter said, they were baptized and added to the church that day about 3,000 in all. A lot of people that were just understanding that there is some kind of disconnect between me and God, disconnect with other people, and the recognition that this guy, Jesus, is a perfect sacrifice, a beautiful uh, if, if we're going to unify ourselves around something or someone, what a, I don't know if there's anything better to be uh, unified around than somebody who's willing to give up his life and sacrifice his life for us to bring us back into a relationship with God, by which now we relate to each other through that, um, through that you know, relationship that we receive from God through Jesus Christ. So Paul goes on and he says this in the, back in his letter in Ephesians. He says, so now you Gentiles... You're no longer strangers or foreigners. You're no longer strangers to God. Okay? You're no longer outsiders. You are citizens along with all of God's holy people. You are members of God's family. We are family together. As God is the center and sustainer of our family. And then he goes on in verse 20. It says, together, it's all of us, together, we. And this is something that is really important for us in our, in, in our 21st century uh, you know, world is we live in such an isolated world and we live in such an isolated way of thinking about God. We tend to think of God about in terms of I and me rather than together and we and all of us who find our identity and our unity in Christ Jesus. So together, we. We, the people, we are his house, built on the foundation of the work of the apostles and the prophets. And the cornerstone is Jesus Christ. The cornerstone in those days was that, like, you started with a cornerstone. This was, like, the most important stone that you would build your house around. All the strength and the weakness of that house was all dependent upon the cornerstone. And so what Paul is basically saying, this whole movement, this whole family finds its strength around Jesus Christ. That when we lean on his strength and lean on his wisdom, then we become strong. And that's, a, that's just not a, a me thing. That's a, that's a we thing, okay? We are carefully joined together in him, becoming a holy temple to God. That we together, we become this, this group of people that is indwelled by the Spirit of God, that creates that unity by which we come and say, you know what, our unity is around Jesus Christ. And through that, through our hearts and our love for God and for one another, we sing praises to God as the temple of God. And so, but here's the thing. One of the things that's just interesting when you look at this is um, during the early church, you see, they spoke in all these different languages 
And God didn't just say, okay, here's the deal. This is what we're going to do. We're going to start a new language, and everybody learns the new language. This is how the kingdom of God's going to work. No, there's still diversity in languages. In fact, when you look through the New Testament, there's so much diversity in there, and there's so much where God doesn't talk about things that, um, you know, that we tend to try to unify ourselves around or we think that are most important. God doesn't really tell us what kind of music that we should sing before God. He doesn't say what the kingdom of God, you know, what kind of food we should like and not like as far as tastes. He doesn't talk about, you know, what kind of genres of music or anything like that. We see all throughout the New Testament of just this amazing beauty of diversity, the ability for us to appreciate diversity. In fact, diversity is an incredible gift when we understand what we should be unified around, right? When we have an anchor and a strong anchor on our diversity, then we can appreciate and flourish in our diversity, that we no longer have to be competing against each other. I want to be like God, you want to be like God, but you're better than me at that, but so then I want to be better than you at that. Instead of you know, getting that tit for tat and all that sort of stuff, I can look at people who are better than me and just go, man, God, you gave them this incredible gift. I'm so glad that they're part of my life because now they can bless me with something where I'm weak and where they're strong. That just makes us stronger. Diversity makes us strong when we are unified with King Jesus. We can enjoy so much of our differences and so much of our diversities when we are unified around King Jesus. Now, the reason why I say King Jesus is this, because this is so important. You know, I always say tongue-in-cheek that, you know, this world would get along and we would all be unified if everybody would just do what I want them to do, right? Doesn't work that way. But it does work that way when we all come and unified under this, yes, this one person, King Jesus. Why? Because he's a humble leader. He's a wise leader. And he is a good leader. He's a good king. And when we think about, you know, how we become unified, we should become unified around what does our king desire and want. And that means also that we would lay down, you know, this whole idea like, well, my Jesus, you know. And then you go, well, I don't know about that, but my Jesus. And now we're all in conflict with each other. We shouldn't unify and go, okay, what does our king Jesus want? And because I trust him, I'm willing to lay down my ego or lay down my pride when I'm wrong because I know that when I come and I listen to the Lord and allow him to speak in my life, I become wiser and good things happen because he's, he's so good. Colossians 3 says this, in this new life that we have in Christ, it doesn't matter if you are a Jew or Gentile, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbaric, uncivilized, slave or free, Christ is all that matters, and he lives in all of us. Our culture, you know, we can change all these things out, you know, uncivilized, slave, free, all of these things, and we can put different things in our cult, you know, that goes on in our culture. But the reality and truth of that statement is Christ is all that matters. Our bond and our relationship with Jesus Christ is what matters the most. You know, I talked about how, you know, early on, um, you know, talk about, God, if, if God has as a language, and if he does speak a language, I believe that the language has always been the language of the heart. It's always been about not so much of the, the vocal sounds that come out of my mouth, but, but the motivations that's within my heart. And so what God is really doing is, is, he is he's teaching me to speak a new language, and that new language is a language 
that loves him, that adores him. It's a new language by which he works in my heart, strengthens my heart by which that language is spoken out into the world around me in love. You know, and the one thing that I've learned about, you know, just in my journey of, you know, the last 30 years or so of following Christ is, uh, yeah, we're called to be a family. Yeah, none of us do that perfectly right, right? Sometimes we fight like family, and sometimes we kind of get on each other and, and things like that, but, you know, one of the things I feel like is, is the unifying factor in a family is also grace, that our father and his son speak into us what does it mean to how we relate to one another. And I can't tell you how much I'm so grateful that, that, that Jesus Christ, who knows all things, does all things perfectly, continues to give me grace. And he gives me grace because he desires for me to continue to, to step back into that relationship with him when I've messed up, by which I can feel secure and safe knowing that he still loves me. And I can, and I can grow and, and, and grow deeper in that relationship with him. And that is the way that we are to speak that into the lives of each other as well. As we grow in this family, we love this idea of being family and we love this, you know, being unified, but it's heart's business, isn't it? Now, you know, one of the things that uh, as Christians, we can just kind of go on our lives and just kind of attend church or attend programs and, and keep people at bay, but that's not what God envisioned either. In fact, what's interesting is, is that the very, one of the, the um, one of the first conflicts within the, the church, it's recorded in Acts chapter 6. The first conflict was between two different people groups within the church. Within the church, they were already starting to create some tribalism. And it was these two groups in, in Acts chapter 6 where it talks about how these two different groups, one were these Hebraic Jews and the others were these Hellenistic Jews. They were just different backgrounds. One was just a little bit, you know, they were more, uh, grew up more in Israel, more traditional, uh, the traditions of being a Jew, the cultural traditions. And the others were Hellenistic Jews. They grew up around the, the Greek-speaking world and those cultures and things. And so they saw each other as suspicious because they had grown apart because of what, what they thought would truly matter and what was really important. So in this, there were some complaints that were happening by the Hellenistic Jews that their widows were getting shafted by the Hebraic Jews when it came to feeding the widows. So now we have these two different groups that are beginning to um, deal with this. Now, in our modern culture, and even within our own modern church, the way that we would solve this, it would be kind of like this. Hebraic Jews... Hellenistic Jews, yeah, there's a lot of, they're really different. They don't really connect really well because they have different cultural mindsets and thoughts. And so here we go. Here's what we're going to do. We're going to start two new churches. We're going to start a Hebraic Jew church, and we're going to start a Hellenistic Jew church. That will make things better. Or even within churches all across the world, you know what would be better? Let's start small groups. For those of you who don't really like the Hebraic Jews and you're Hellenistic Jews, we got a small group for you. For those of you who are Hellenistic Jews, you don't really like the Hebraic Jews, we got a small group for you. We got a small group for you where you're at. But guess what? That's not what they did. If we were to inform ourselves and to understand even 2,000 years how we are to relate to each other, what we see is they said, okay, we find our unity around our identity in Jesus Christ. We find our unity around the blood sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Neither Jew nor Gentile, Hebraic Jew or Hellenistic Jew, we are one. 
we're going to figure this out as a family. We're going to work through this as a family because that's what the family of God does. And lastly, one of the things here is, is this right here, is, is you, you're only part of this family once you trust and accept Jesus as your savior and cornerstone of his family. This family is one that you choose to accept and to be a part of. It's a family that starts off with saying, you know what, I feel this estrangement between God because of my life and the choices that I've made. And I don't want to be estranged anymore. I want to accept that Jesus Christ as my Savior, the one who sacrificed his life so that way God doesn't have to punish me because of my sins. And I take his punishment as a gift for me so that way I can now begin to have a relationship with God. Romans 5.8 says, God demonstrates his own love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us to bring us back into a relationship with him. You know, on December 30th, 1995, that's a long time ago, y'all, I said, I do, to my beautiful, beloved wife. And it was at that moment that I became part of her family. Before that, I knew her family, but we were kind of friends. I was kind of a little bit of an outsider and all of that. But that moment when I chose to, to bring her into my family and me to be a part of her family, those relationships changed. And I'm so blessed to be part of her family that I know that her family would do anything for me. I can go over there, knock on the door, or I don't even really need to knock on the door. I just walk in and just say hi, and they just love me right where I'm at. But that takes a choice to be able to say I do. And it takes a choice to be able to say I do to the best big brother you could ever have in Jesus Christ who sacrificed his life for you. To have the best father who will love you better than anybody on this planet can even come close to, even the best ones, who desires to be with you and to be part of this family forever, that we would no longer just passively observe God, but we would step into his home and be with him. And to, be, and to make that choice, I do. I accept Christ as my savior, and I wanna give my life to him and to express that through baptism. John chapter one, Jesus, or um, in John chapter one, John wrote this. He said, but to all who believed in Jesus and accepted him, he gave the right to become the child of God. You know, as we go through election seasons, we're gonna talk all about rights and you're gonna hear all about rights, which is fine. But the greatest right is not a right that, sh- that we demand. It's a right that we have been given by the grace of God, a right to be called his child and that he loves us, that they are reborn, not with a physical birth resulting in the human passion or plan, but by the birth that comes from God, God lighting up our heart to a, a new family. Instead of this world being our family, that our father would be our family, that we would come into that as new people into that family to allow him to raise us in his goodness and his wisdom and his love and to raise us together as a family. In a moment, we're gonna have an opportunity just to be able to process these things. 
If you've never stepped into the family of God, man, today's your day, man. There's no reason why to wait. It's the best family you could ever have. And you may say, well, wait a minute. You know what? I've been to different churches and they're a mess and all of those things. And there's probably some truth in that. I'm not talking about stepping into the family of River Run. I'm talking about stepping in the family of the creator of the universe. Bigger than that. I'm talking about stepping in the family that has an older brother who, who desires to love you, to be with you, and who sacrificed his life for you. So what are we talking about here? We're talking about the, the big C, the universal church of those who have humbly said, I want to be part of your family, God. Yeah. We're going to have some people here on the sides that be able to walk you through that decision, to make that decision to say, hey, you know what? I don't want to walk out of here estranged from God another day. I want to be in his family. If you've ever made that decision and yet you've never really kind of made that kind of ultimate confession before other people through baptism, and that's what baptism is, is, is really about saying, okay, God, I'm in, I'm all a part of your family. And now I want to be able to express to you and to others my, um, you know, my now association with you through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ through baptism. They would be more than happy to, to connect with you and to pray with you and to talk to you through that as well. Also, they're your brothers and sisters too. You know, if there's one thing I've learned about being a dad, I love it when my kids talk to me about things and they all come together. When we pray together, our Heavenly Father loves that. Whatever is going on in your life, man, there's just something about the way that God connects our hearts together and with Him is when we pray together. And so they'll have the opportunities for that as well. And then there's communion. Communion just reminds us what kind of family that we're a part of, a sacrificial uh, family that's born out of love to bring us back into a reconciled relationship with God and with one another. And also it's a time when we just kind of thank God as a family of what he has done for us. All good things come from him and, and our offerings and offerings and our tithes by which we collect these together as a family to continue to trust our Father, to keep his work going on in our lives and through our lives out into our community. And so let's pray, and then we'll just kind of allow God just kind of speak into our hearts there. Father, I thank you so much that you didn't just leave us alone as a humanity to figure these things out. When we become unified around our carnal flesh, bad things happen, God. We, we have a propensity to mess things up. But God, you know that. And that's why out of your love for us, you didn't just leave us alone. That you decided not do what the easy thing is and just complain and whine and moan about us. You did the hard thing, coming into our world to become flesh, to die for us, to give us a new heart. A heart that beats your blood, that beats your love, that accepts your love, and just flourishes in that, not just individually, but together as a family as well. And so, Father, as we, we pray, we commune with you, we offer our gifts to you, I pray, Father, that your spirit would just continue to speak into us, that you are our Abba, Father, that these are the things that we do to unite with you and with one another. It's in your son's name I pray. Amen.